Well, for those of you who are just uh, coming on, uh, Jesse and I are going to share this last uh, Dhamma talk together. I will be speaking the first half and Jesse the second half. And I'd like to begin with a uh, poem by Li Po, the great uh, Chinese poet who lived in the 700s in China during uh, a time of great social upheaval and war. Um, On this tower, as I leave our homeland, Late autumn wounds thoughts of return, and heaven long, a setting sun far off. This cold, clear river keeps flowing away. Chinese clouds rise from mountain forests. Mongol geese on sandbars take flight. A million miles, azure pure. The eye reaches beyond what ruins our lives. And I'm beginning with this because I think in this time uh, that we're living in that has a lot of um, upheaval and uncertainty that it's the encouragement is to make sure you take the time for your eye to reach beyond what ruins our lives at times. That, that, um, what an important and beautiful thing to remember to do. And I think that we um, can be so flooded with information about pain, uh, all the various levels of pain and some of it that's so frustrating can be a lot of the unnecessary pain and suffering Um, and the second thing I'm going to really stress is to hold on to your goodness that at least each night before you go to sleep that you remember goodness and hold on to your goodness and go to sleep from that place as best you can. It could be when you wake up in the morning as well. But this, um, this time period, it's almost like the um, stream of news can, can undermine all of our goodness and all of the good things that people do. So that, that's the second thing I would recommend. So that by the eye reaching beyond what's ruining the, the, our lives or holding on to our goodness. It's to make sure that we, of course, when helplessness appears or hopelessness or sliding into depression or despair, that, uh, that we honor that, that we recognize it, that of course that there will be a lot of fear or anger, whatever it is that in response to the... Um, suffering, Uh, but that we, um, that we don't let that win, that we really do our best to recognize if we're, we're staying too long 
and um, despair or hopelessness that we find the resources within ourselves to take a long enough break to find the goodness again, to find um, these practices that give us so much refuge and sanctuary support uh, so that we have this goodness to offer the world. But of course it has to come from deep, a deep well, an inexhaustible well inside. So in other words, we find this way that, of course, we will go down at times, but that we're resilient and we bounce back. Some of you might have um, watched the TV show Mr. Rogers or have heard of it or have seen several movies that have come out about him. But he was, a, he was an um, extraordinary uh, gift to the world of children as well as adults. And there was a film recently about a journalist who became friends with Mr. Rogers and he, when he met him he was very cynical and was tr intending to try to find um, the shadow side of him um, and expose it. And he went, of course, to the set of Mr. Rogers' TV show, and then uh, Mr. Rogers made friends with him first, and then they became friends. And he said this about, his, about Mr. Rogers. He said, Mr. Rogers did not teach me how to be happy. He taught me how to understand my sadness. And I, I feel like what was so moving about Mr. Rogers, I tear up because I feel like he didn't shy away from connecting with children uh, around difficult emotion or difficult subjects, but he was also so very deeply kind. And so that combination of connecting and kindness helps so many of us. Um, in terms of staying connected to our goodness. So I'm going to say that, that, that quotation again because I think it's so important that Mr. Rogers did not teach me how to be happy. He taught me how to understand my sadness. A great teacher from India, Srinazargadatta Maharaj, described or defined mindfulness as the intention to understand rather than to judge our experience. And within that, you know, that, that we can see how easy it is for us to judge our experience and others, um, especially at this time. I think we see some things that people say or do, and it's that knee-jerk reaction of judgment versus the intention to understand uh, requires so much um, practice of, of pausing, of, of seeing, of accepting the reaction, of accepting the knee-jerk reaction, of you know, understanding ourselves, and then also that just that wonder, you know, I wonder why 
this person does this, or I wonder why I do this, just that pause. But it's not an intellectual exercise. It's really just making space for getting that somebody is probably acting out of great fear or great anger or greed. So that intention to understand rather than to judge our experience will often um, bring the attention to a place of allowing experience rather than kind of jumping on and um, experience, um, trying to get rid of it, get that it's, it's that opening up around experience, giving, giving um, that breathing, breathing room just coming back to our hands, back to our body, back to a few breaths. Uh, that's the art of the pause. And then if we can, remembering kindness. So I wanted to um, touch base on the Brahma Viharas. The, these, they're called um, Brahma Vihara, Vihara is home, Brahma is heaven or divine. It's like these um, homes that uh, we can come back to. It's like our, our goodness that we can come back to and cultivate. So the first one, loving kindness, and, and just to add, the Buddha didn't just teach loving kindness, he taught the four as a, a, a whole package, not, not just metta, not just loving-kindness. So all four um, are meant to be an awareness infused with wisdom, infused with understanding. So if we remember the Vipassana, wisdom includes our connection and deep understanding of anicca, dukkha, and anatta, of impermanence, the unreliability of experience, of uncontrollability, and that there's no solid, separate self anywhere, but nothing exists by itself. That this, um, it's like mindfulness is awareness infused with wisdom. This is very important. It's not just any old random awareness or casual awareness. It's really a Mindfulness is, it, the definition of it is that it, our awareness is infused with wisdom. Loving kindness is love, a loving awareness, a kind awareness, but infused with wisdom. So, and the compassion, the caring about pain in this world is the caring about pain, but again, it's infused with wisdom, etc. The the mudita or um, empathetic joy. It's a appreciating, appreciating joy in the world, appreciating the beauty and pleasure in the world, uh, and sometimes with gratitude. But again, it's infused with wisdom. The fourth, upeka or equanimity, is um, this deep, understanding or deep balance. It's like the awareness is infused um, so deeply with um, this understanding that things are just as they are. And so that the awareness that can connect with this range of joy and sorrow, pleasure, pain, 
gain, loss, uh, fame, disrepute, this, this awareness that can connect, but also deeply understand it uh, as life as it is. That's the equanimity. And clearly that um, the Buddha said that this equanimity practice requires the deepest wisdom, the deepest understanding. So what, what do we mean by love, a loving or kind awareness infused by wisdom? It means that it's without conditions. So it's, the tendency is to pick and choose aspects of ourselves that we can feel kind or have metaphor, but maybe if we're sad or angry or tired or restless or <laughs> etc., cetera, um, that we don't have this connection of kindness with. This is the difference between metta includes all aspects of ourselves, not I love myself if I'm not sleepy or, you know, whatever, all the shoulds, all the shoulds, inwardly and outwardly. That's what metta means or loving kindness. It's, it's with, um, without conditions. And the caring about pain it's not, again, that picking and choosing with, uh, I, I'll care about this person's suffering, but not this person's suffering, or I'll care about physical pain, but not mental pain, etc. It's It's this without conditions. That's what makes it a Brahma-vihara, the inclusive of all. The appreciation of joy or beauty, again, it's, it's like... Um, not with any kind of attachment, <laughs> which is very hard, right? It's like if we love the flower, but then it passes away. You know, it's like a appreciation of beauty, of beauty, just as it is, including that things, that wisdom, that things will come and go. And of course, the equanimity kind of has built into that. Um, description of joy, sorrow, pleasure, pain, you know, fame, disrepute, um, this, this sense of inclusive of the, all the vicissitudes of life, the unconditional acceptance. So it's really unconditional love or kindness, unconditional compassion, unconditional empathetic joy, um, unconditional um, equanimity, unconditional acceptance. And particularly, uh, there's a lot to go into with either, all of this, but I wanted to, right now, just kind of touch base again. We've, we've touched already into it, but the caring about pain, uh, the Buddha taught, just that reminder that um, the helplessness we feel in the face of pain, the overwhelm that we feel, is actually good. It's not bad. If you're feeling overwhelmed or helpless, that's usually when we can remember that we can care about it, that, that we don't have to get lost in grief or cruelty. So the experience that can seem so much like compassion but isn't, but that doesn't make it wrong or bad. It means that it just isn't this unconditional compassion. Often when we connect with pain, we will feel grief. 
And I wanted to really emphasize that there's a lot of um, loss going on and, and will probably continue. <laughs> and that often we will feel a lot of grief. Um, and that can be the kind of ticket or the remembering that if we're drowning, that we can remember, oh, I can care about this. I can care about my heart right now. I can care about this, a broken heart or a grieving heart. And then we can care about whatever it was that triggered that pain. And the anger that we can feel in the face of the unnecessary suffering or the suffering, again, inwardly or outwardly, uh, as we move into talking about um, practice more out of retreat in the world, relationships, uh, things we might want to be uh, helpful with or change. Just to remember that aversion or anger is good. It, it's like, it's not a bad thing. It's an emotion that we need to learn how to value, to connect with, just like grief. You know, we learn to value, connect with it. But take responsibility being mindful of the experience, which is hard, it's painful to feel anger, to really mindfully be aware of the contraction in the heart and contraction of the body and to remember it's impermanent and remember it's a message often that we want something to change. And then it's again this discernment, we bring the mindfulness, we, we often have to bring the Brahma Viharas in and just see is this something I can put my energy into to make change? We can't, we can't fix all of the problems in the world, but we can choose some things. And some of the more noble things feel impossible. For example, just the idea that we could ourselves be free of greed, hatred, and delusion, or that we don't want to harm. That intention not to harm ourselves and others can feels so um, almost impossible, but it's so worth our, it's so worthy of our um, endeavors. Or, or say we want to work on um, helping people with hunger right now. Uh, it will feel so immense, but we can, we can take one place with it uh, and work toward it. Uh, feeding one person is a big deal that is hungry. There's a um, grocery store near where I live where um, at the beginning of the lockdown um, people started hoarding a lot of things. It was kind of amazing actually. Um, not just toilet paper but vitamins and foods um, and uh, they started having to put signs up, you know, only one allowed and then a lot of, a lot of times anger on the people working there. And you could see that the people working there were starting to kind of get um, fragile from it. So that when I go in there, you know, this is small, right? It's such a small thing, but I really try to connect with people that work there. I try to be kind 
and I try to acknowledge how hard it is for them. And one day, this was a while ago, but it was like at the peak of people not wanting to wear masks and the, the beginning of a lot of um, restrictions. And I just said, how are you? And she said, there are some people who I've known for years that come into this store and I'm never going to forget how painful it has been with them. I, you know, it's just like, it's just been too hard. I don't know if I can forgive them. It was, and she's such a nice, kind being. Um, and I, I can feel already she's starting to shift and be resilient again, but it, it's just like to remember that we might not <laughs> do some huge things, but we can be kind to everyone we meet that are helping us and taking care of us right now. And that it goes a really long way, really long way. And that intention, I can see when people are putting more in their little basket going around the store than um, they're going to be allowed to take. You can see how afraid they are. Uh, or, you know, it's like it takes a lot of kindness, understanding. And I, I'd like to just um, end with just one more little story, which is when I was in um, my freshman year of college. It, it, there's a similarity to the times to me of 1968, 1969, and I was quite involved with some daycare centers and um, feeding, feeding people. Uh, and, and one night there was a big change in what was going on and um, in the introduction to Jesse's book I talk a lot more about it but it was, it was a time of um, real angst real, a lot of inward suffering and outward suffering uh, and there was one teacher I had uh, that was a Quaker and there were a lot of teachers, professors quitting, or some getting fired. Uh, it was a really volatile time. And it was a time when some African-American students decided to take over a dorm because they were asking for very little, very little, but the administration weren't responding. Um, so at any rate, um, I had been involved with the uh, Black Panthers with these daycare centers. and they had sort of shifted overnight to a, a kind of more uh, violent approach, very, again, very intense. And I won't go into the whole story, but um, this professor that morning put up a sign on his door, and he said, going to the woods, uh, we'll be back tomorrow, very early that morning. And the next morning, I was um, carrying a Molotov cocktail in my pockets from the night before making them, uh, not knowing really what I was getting involved with, and really going through a lot. Like this was one of the biggest moments of my life, just this choice point of what I was going to do. Um, and I bumped into him, and he was so peaceful. He. I could see that whatever had happened in the woods had 
had realigned him like a lighthouse. He just came back to his really depth of intention not to harm, to be peaceful. And it had such a big impact on me, huge for my lifetime. Um, I knew, I, he reflected to me, I knew what my intention was this lifetime. I knew who I was. And I put the little cocktails in a garbage can far away from everything that I knew wouldn't harm anybody and left school for a while. So whatever you can do to be in touch with this uh, deep intention to be wise, to be compassionate, to help as best we can to relieve suffering inwardly and outwardly and not to harm, uh, may we all be happy and peaceful of heart. So <clears throat> that's a, a rather good segue into, um, I think, just a little more that we wanted to offer about your transition uh, out of Yogi Land and back into the world. Um, you know, for folks who have been more disconnected and not reading the news and not doing emails, not on social media. Um, The country right now is in like a moment of um, real intensity. It's it's not like a crisis that's new. It's not um, even a sense of volatility really that's new. It's just that most of that volatility has been um, forced into the lives of certain members of our community and not others. So. Um, you know, a few days before our retreat began, um, the black man George Floyd was killed by a police officer in Minneapolis. Um, one of many, 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 of course, over the last years that have been videotaped and got a lot of recognition. Well, since our retreat <clears throat> has unfolded, um, it has inspired like an incredible array of protests and um, demonstrations and just kind of collective movement for just being super fed up with um, the oppressive conditions that so many black people in particular in this country are um, living in, have been formed under these fires of constant suspicion, constant harassment, constant threat of violence from the police and just in general, the institutions of our society. So there is at the moment um, just a, an incredible array of um, demonstrations happening around the country and 
a lot of really beautiful um, expressions of, I think, uh, aspiration for just humanity and um, equality and um, dignity that has been, you know, of course, building, right, for years, decades, centuries in this country. And um, it's one of these times where that pressure has blossomed out of just that community and so that the the pain of it is being felt much more broadly and being shared and held in a much broader way and in some ways similar to like our meditation practice if you're trying to you know you you try to stake a claim for your own human dignity the birthright of your freedom you know that you are inviting the forces of Mara, of delusion, of uh, oppression internally to um, express themselves. It's an engagement with that. Similarly, in the country, there's also been a whole range of, um, you know, expressions of police brutality and white nationalist activity. And you can imagine... um, how the president has responded completely as you might imagine. Um, And so we are in a time right now uh, as you leave retreat in which it's, as Michelle kind of has been saying, it's the perfect time to be practicing um, these skills, these gifts, these commitments that we make during this practice that we, um, know are possible that we know are not just about our own happiness and our own peace of mind but about um, the kind of world we want to live in the kind of relationships we want to have the kind of responsibility we want to take for our communities and it's intense you know i think that depending on where you live it'll the the qualities of it will be different Um, and you can imagine you know that the news is of course focusing on certain aspects of it that are more negative and more difficult. Um, but I think it it brings up something that is, you know, many, some people have asked, you know, during the uh, question and answer periods, during the, the, the earlier session, um, some people have written in. And as always, this dilemma of this practice that can feel so individual, especially in the context Um, in which we're all practicing, which is really kind of isolated from each other even. You know, what is the social value of this when there's so much work to be done in the world? What is the value of going and kind of, you know, getting sensitive to your own body, your own mind? The introspective um, aspect can feel too self-interested, self-absorbed, not attending to the urgency that we might feel about what's needing tending to in the world. And we, you know, there isn't a rote answer to that. Uh, There's not gonna be like a standard issue response. I think that we're both very um, we have total faith in the way that this practice and these teachings and the work that we're doing in it has the potential to be very relevant socially. Um, 
that there are ways in which, just as Michelle was describing, the expression of our goodness, whether it's in kind of very simple interactions with people in our lives or our bolder stands, um, more dramatic commitments, um, that that undoubtedly has an impact. And it's not just the action, but the intention behind the action, the volitional energy that is inspiring our engagement, that is inspiring our activism, that is inspiring whatever it might be, matters in terms of what gets replicated in that. So, um, you know, we have 100% faith in the potential for this. Um, and we also understand that we are of different callings. and. You know, like I said, I think in one of the question periods, you know, we're also totally sure that if it were not for some people sitting in caves during all of these times of social upheaval and really trying to understand the arising and passing of phenomena, understand the formation of greed, hatred, and a way of life that was the kind of perfect balance um, of the Buddhist teachings and of my commitment to social change and social justice. And I think I've um, come to a place where he's trying to get in touch with us. I don't know why he's doing that. Is it okay? I don't know. He tried to unmute. Sorry. Oh, we're good. Okay. Um, Where I've come to a place where I've realized that, that these things don't have to fit together perfectly. The, the Buddha taught these teachings not as a way to change society. Mindfulness practice is not a method that is designed to teach us how to change the institutions and structures of society. It's designed for the unbinding internally from delusion and from the greed and hatred that's a result of that misunderstanding, misperception of reality that may have social implications. But to really understand that we may need to look elsewhere, um, we, I would say almost definitely need to look elsewhere to um, find solutions to how do we get along collectively together in a way that's really transformed, right? That. Um, that is not oppressive to anyone, uh, that allows all people to flourish based on their gifts and capacities. Um, the creation of that world is not just a matter of all of us cultivating our own compassion or our own wisdom. The, that requires really entirely different tools that, again, can be influenced by our practice, but are different. And so that it's not really fair to place the burden of how to make that great society on the Dharma. Um, which isn't to say that there aren't a lot of important lessons that one can learn from the other and that ways that our understanding of social change actually can impact our understanding of internal change and the approaches to internal change can impact our collective work together. Um, And I think there's just a couple that I might offer as starting places. One is really something that Michelle has already touched on. Beginning with ourselves to really um, 
understand that if we have an experience of emotional volatility, of anger, of rage, of um, incredible grief in response to suffering in the world, in response to oppression or abuse, to just really be careful about our approach to that internally and to not feel that this practice is about sort of suppressing of the heart in the face of grief, in the face of the vulnerability that we experience in being. And so this idea that like you need to get rid of anger to feel love is I think a very powerful misconception. So I don't know where that just got cut off. Um, but um, the idea is we have to can trace the anger back to a place of love, right? That it's something we care about that has been harmed or threatened, uh, something we care about that has been... Um, is it working? I'm going to turn off their sound, Marlon. Um, that has been harmed. And that is our entry point into finding love, our connection to love through anger or incredible grief. You know, when we have the, the balance of mind, the interest, the tenderness, when we have those conditions present, that it's important to engage and to try to be interested and try to learn and try to understand the nature of this internal oppression, right? This internal suffering. But when those conditions aren't there, right? When we're too scared, when the energy is too low, when the concentration isn't there, to know that it's actually not safe to engage the rage, the sadness, the fear. And in those cases, because if we were to engage it, we would get sucked into it and it would end up creating more pain, more trauma, more, more uh, anger and aversion, greed, delusion. And so there's this balance of when conditions aren't right, we move away. We bring in something pleasant, we distract ourselves, we don't hold ourselves responsible for the uh, engagement with the most intense forces of delusion when we're not up for it. I think socially speaking, we have to understand that something similar plays out, that there are members of our human community who are more traumatized by the social oppressions that we're talking about right now in the world, right? Uh, around race, around class, or gender. I mean, of course, there's all kinds that we can explore. But whatever they are, if we find that we are in a position under which we're actually not the most threatened by those conditions, that there is a responsibility, perhaps, to show up for them in a way where we can recognize that, like, wow, the people who are actually most oppressed and most in danger uh, during any given condition shouldn't have the burden of the responsibility to actually be trying to come up with their most kind, benevolent, wise, clear-seeing selves. That actually they should be able to retreat and pull back and take care of themselves. And those of us who might have more privilege in whatever way um, and, and are not under the same degree of stress and direct physical harm uh, or the threat of that have more responsibility actually to show up to engage. And especially in these contexts where there is so much lack of understanding right now between so many people in this country, right? This, this schism, and, not, and it really is worldwide, right? Between these forces that have so aligned in the last years. And we have the option under which 
one option is we just have to just beat the other side and just crush them and destroy them. And um, that is how most politics works and that's how most of human history has kind of played out that dynamic. The other side, the other way, which is more informed by this practice, is we create enough stability through concentration, through the breath, right, as the metaphor. We create enough stability that we have the strength of mind to engage meaningfully with the conflict, meaningfully in a way that can help try to understand um, the other side, right? Understand the pain or understand the frustration or the anger or the, the lack of knowing. And so these, the, the idea of like a social mindfulness of like, what is that inquiry into the views and the fears and the pains and the longings of other people for whom we might have very different notions and have a lot of disagreement, that is ultimately going to be an essential part of how any society comes to flourish if we don't want to just have the idea of winning and losing. And yet, of course, that that engagement should needs to, at first at least, be done by those people who are at, at least the least threatened by the danger of engagement. Um, so in this case, and particularly, you know, with our group, it is majority white, to really understand for white folks that like there is an incredible opportunity to be important allies to people of color, to black people in particular, whose oppression in this country has uh, such an intense and dramatic and horrible history, that there might really be powerful ways that you can take responsibility in this social context for some of that process of investigation, of being able to bear some of the heat because you're not as um, threatened by it directly. And in that way, also, you know, come into relationship and come into solidarity and understand how are the ways that we might move forward together. So, you know, however we move forward, it's just like there is something about the Dhamma that doesn't change, that is not dependent upon uh, this particular social dynamic or this century, right? It's like you look at the many centuries of uh, ways that, yogis, monks, nuns, practitioners of all kinds have weathered these storms and tried to be um, aligned with the forces of goodness and kindness and generosity, caring, wisdom in ways that are beyond, that there are ways of doing it, that when we go out into the world and we don't have the same conditions for our meditation practice to be so refined, uh, that we commit to our ethical precepts. We commit to dana, dana sila bhavana. It comes back to these basic foundational practices that the Buddha offered and taught. Dana, the offering of our goodness, right? It's not just of money or resources. It's like the offering, the generosity of heart to be of help and the the goodness that that creates is unfathomable and the goodness that we can then fall back on in terms of relationship to ourselves is fundamentally important and then sila the refraining from harm the refraining from violence from uh thievery from delusion that might cause more harm it's like this sense of carefulness with our actions carefulness with our words this is that sense of how can we explore these things in the heart and yet still protect one another. Um, Explore these volatile emotions without dumping them on the world around us. 
these are the most important qualities um, that we have to offer to the world and to ourselves. And this way that by offering them, they don't diminish, they just increase. Be. And whatever goodness we can offer, um, you know, from that connection with ourselves, from that connection with the purity of heart, um, will be of just incredible benefit. And we don't always need to see the outcomes of that, to have faith in it. Uh, the faith can build from just the goodness of feeling it and how it feels when someone else is kind, when someone else is generous. Um, and the solidarity of love that comes from this um, continued way of being. And just to remember that piece of like, all action is individual. We are all responsible for our own actions. And yet all results really are shared. All results of our actions really are collective. And the unfathomable, amazing beauty of that is something that um, can guide us and um, I hope does. So um, we uh, just want to thank you all. Uh, we'll have our chanting again in a minute, which will be live also. But just it's really been very powerful to be able to sit with you all this time and thanking Michelle for being such a good teammate and Darine, who um, has been just really awesome, holding it down the, the mornings, the earlier time for all of us. And we've been checking in every day to see how everyone's doing. And um, and Marlon and Charlie and Tara and Carrie and um, Christine and Inger and all the folks at IMS who have just been amazing, really trying to like figure this out as we go along. Um, and um, just know that it's like there's so many good people trying to keep these teachings going and, and keep our access to the Dhamma alive um, during all these incredible stresses and, and challenges, but also finding new ways to do it, and it's exciting. So um, it's been wonderful to be with you all, and thank you for your practice and engagement and supporting IMS in this way. And uh, we look forward to seeing you in real life soon. And we are doing some Sunday sittings um, with our own organization if people want to keep sitting. Uh, so just check that out. Yeah, and other programs. You can look at vipassanahawaii.org. Yeah, take so care. please take care. Take care of your hearts. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.